Good afternoon, everyone. It's Thankful Thursday, and I purposely put my business partner, my mentor, my friend with me, the Double B, Blaine Bartlett, here with me, BlaineBartlett.com, every Thursday, because the simple things to do are unfortunately simple not to do, and that's one of the lessons I've learned working with Blaine, because it's simple to work with Blaine. And Blaine, we are so blessed to be together. I just want to start out by saying thank you on Thankful Thursday. Thank you, my friend. I could not agree with you more. I love working with you uh, since the very beginning. This is, I mean, when we wrote that book together, it was one of the easiest uh, writing projects I've ever done. <laughs> well, it certainly was easier for me than it was for you. Uh, I just got to tell stories as you taught me the lessons. And uh, talking about easy to do, I'm not sure. There's several things, but we're a little bit older. And, you know, I look around sometimes, take, for example, chat GPT. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking, I never thought in my lifetime I'd see something like that. And then I just went to the Zinger Automobile Factory, uh, the world's first 3D printed luxury race car and cars and $600 million they've invested. And, uh, you know, I literally walked around there with Colleen, who you know, and, and you also mentor as well. I, I in, in the actual Yale engineer and his son, they actually didn't think that that would be available for another 20 years of where yeah. they're at today. But we were talking about the simple things to do, unfortunately, simple not to. I never thought I'd be able to order beer online. And uh, boy, I'm going to college. Some of the things I'm glad don't exist when I was in college, but this is one of those things, an online beer store, shopbevana.com. It is Nirvana of Bevana. And uh, we have the Senior Director of Business Development of Bevana with us, Aaron Gore. Thank you, number one. And Thank you again for joining us. How are you today? Uh, doing fantastic, Blaine. And I just have to say, it's wonderful working with you guys, too. I really feel like our next book, uh, Title to be Determined, uh, Time to be Released to be Determined, Existence to be Determined, is going to be absolutely spectacular. But uh, a few beers is definitely going to make any uh, writing go a little quicker. <laughs> it's already well, happened. We just haven't arrived yet. <laughs> exactly, man. A few, we're just a few, as you say, Aaron, we're just a few clicks away. Uh, from that book as we are a few clicks away from the finest local craft beverages delivered globally. Uh, give me a little bit of insight uh, first on, you know, how this all came to fruition because, you know, it wasn't in the internet when I was a kid, but the minute I started in 1992 working on the internet with West Publishing, man, I would have loved. They thought I was crazy when I bought a car online. I certainly would have loved. I'm from San Diego. There's some pretty great craft beers. I would have loved to have those suckers delivered where I was around the world. Yeah, no, at the time, uh, you know, to your point, being in the college age, that's a little bit more dangerous to have that at your fingertips. But by the same token, the beautiful thing about craft beers, it's not like anybody's trying to plow through a 30 rack of them in one fell swoop. Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> no we that's really honest, like most college students couldn't afford three of them. Uh, so you, we, we'd be much safer. It'd be fine. It's it's an affordable luxury. That's how we treat it, and that's how we uh, that's how we promote ourselves. But uh, we actually grew out of a D nine Brewing Company uh, right here out of Cornelius, North Carolina. And as we grew, we were one of the fastest growing breweries in the entire Southeast, and realized that a lot of the challenges that we were facing, just keeping up with our own growth, were ones that a lot of companies were facing very similarly. You know, just the ability to be able to get product to customers, the ability to be able to keep up with your own scale. Um, you know, a lot of these companies are the proverbial dog that caught the car. What do you do at that point? 
So a lot of the solutions that we found for ourselves, we realized were uh, cross applicable. They were things that we would really be able to turn into a platform and really be able to help other companies with. So outside of just being able to order beer online, which is a huge part of what we do, we also help breweries not only scale the production, but also scale distribution and access into the stores and just help people be able to connect with breweries, connect with kombucha companies, connect with seltzer companies, hemp companies that otherwise they'd never have the opportunity to enjoy just based on where they're at and the realities of the economics of it all. You know, when I was going to college, and this goes back more years than I care to share, um, and this was the University of Oregon, uh, we couldn't get Coors beer uh, in Oregon. We had to actually drive across the state line to buy it. And boy, have times changed. <laughs> so I was you know, struck by you know, not only you know, the idea that you, know, you, you grew your own uh, uh, brewery and scaled it and whatnot, but how have you been? And this is, I, I'm just fascinated by this uh, because the liquor laws are not universally <laughs> equal <laughs> across states. Now you've got least. a federal line here, but each state has its own uh, particular way of looking at this. How do you navigate that? Um, because you are, you know, throughout the U.S. Yeah. How, how did you learn to navigate that? And from a distribution standpoint, how do you actually work with a local small craft brewer to yeah, get them across the state line into other markets? Yeah, so you're 100% correct. The uh, the liquor laws in this country are an absolute mess. We like to joke that we basically have 50 small countries spot welded together. Uh, so the short answer on how we're able to make it all work and how we're able to navigate all that is, you know, I don't sleep. Uh, so <laughs> that tends to help. But Aside from that, a lot of it is just exactly that. I mean, like any any good business uh, that's trying to penetrate a red ocean, you know, you need a blue ocean business model. So mm -hmm. our big role was to be able to uh, consolidate all the things that are scalable, consolidate, frankly, all the things that breweries don't want to be doing anyways. You know, breweries don't want to manage wide scale distribution. They don't want to manage scalable production. They don't want to manage wholesale and distribution. They got into this to make good beer and to connect with people. We want to get them back to that. Yeah. That's what got me into this industry, but I also am well aware of the fact that, you know, we need specialization. The industry is maturing very rapidly. So our role in the industry is to find those areas, those seams where we're able to really be able to uh, cross that bridge and do something that for them, they'd have to be replicating it. You know, there's 9,500 breweries in the U.S. 9,500 times. If we're able to bring that all in-house, bring that under one umbrella and do that for them and let them get back to the innovation, the creativity, the narrative building, the creative aspect that they really are passionate about and for the most part more skilled at, that's really where we live. And within the context of uh, delivering, is there a different packaging requirement or some sort of nuance that is uh maintained as a standard throughout no matter what people are drinking uh do you make them conform to certain packaging and, and deliverable standards yeah the more you're able to standardize the better you're able to get your unit economics under control um you know i don't think it's any mystery to anybody that if you're trying to do eight trillion things and there's no standardization that gets really expensive very very quickly so we try to stick to cans but within that we uh good news is cans are pretty popular but 
We can do 12 ounce cans, 12 ounce sleeks, which is, you know, like white claw truly cans. Um, we can do uh, 16 ounce cans, pretty much anything, as long as it's aluminum. Uh, it, big issue with bottles is not only are they heavy, but they're also really tall. And probably the single smartest move we ever made was uh, making sure that our, our packaging can all fit in the flat rate uh, box. So all of our custom packaging is all still flat rate compliant, which at least lets me know where my upper bound is on shipping, which is also how I'm able to offer uh, free shipping on all orders over $65. I know exactly where my economics are. I know exactly what my unit margins are, and I know what I can do to make it as painless a process for the customer as possible. Yeah. You know, that, that idea of standardization, particularly around the packaging, how far in advance did you take into consideration the constraint on packaging before you actually jumped into that side of the pool? So I've been doing this a very long time. So about the uh, first time one of us uh, had the bright idea to say, hey, you know, we should do ship beer. Uh, that was about the moment where we we're like, okay, so we're making sure that box is uh, standard and it can fit in a standard common carrier flat rate. Uh, honestly, that was one of the first considerations that we had because pretty much everything flows from there. Uh, yep. This whole industry has a whole lot of ways for you to go upside down. So, you know, the biggest thing that we do, even for a lot of our partners in the brick and mortar distribution, is just making sure that they're not upside down because, you know, most of them don't even have a basic, uh, they've never even gone to accounting 101. So if we're able to help them understand where the costs are and help them understand where to actually make money in this, you know, the thing I say over and over is you can make great beer and be a home brewer. Blaine, I know you homebrew yourself. Uh, you get into this to sell great beer, and that's a very different phenomenon. And to sell it, you have to market. Yeah, I, I got into it to drink. Well, there's that too. <laughs> and I got I got into it so I could visit Blaine, so I could drink with Blaine, which is great as well. Uh, but more importantly, um, the marketing side of it, uh, we talked and joked about. You know, it's you know not a thirty pack of Schaefer Life. Uh, you know, there's a certain aspect or uh, demographic that you're addressing when it's an online craft beer delivery globally uh what does that demographic look like and how are you marketing towards what i assume to be a little uh more sophisticated audience than the fraternities down at uh oregon well slightly more sophisticated i, I don't count myself as being too much of a sophisticate uh, but I will say, uh, yeah, first and foremost, for anybody from uh, any regulatory bodies listening, uh, first and foremost, that demographic is over the age of 21. So let's go ahead and start. Yeah, there. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Outside of that, um, there's obviously the target market of craft beer, which is basically people who look exactly like me. You know, people between the ages of 25 and 55, white, cis, male, had, you know, pretty much all the above. Usually, we do you need a beard or no? No beard or beard? Is that a requirement? Oh, definitely a beard, tattoos, blocky <laughs> glasses, a knitted cap. I, I basically have yeah, yeah. a walking stereotype. Uh, but the beautiful thing about this is that, you know, there's so much culture that comes with craft beer, and that's a wonderful thing. It's one of the things that keeps people going. It's also one of the things that can keep it restricted when it comes to target demos. So one of the things that us being able to offer online is it gets people out of that taproom experience that may or may not be a place they feel comfortable and gets them right to the product that may be their entry point, may be the thing that they're most interested in. Now, I will say the best thing that we've ever done on a marketing standpoint Honestly, was using the breweries that we work with as our best marketing engines, not only as evangelists for us, 
but every one of our partners shares incentives with us. And that's absolutely critical because it's in their best interest to sell as much beer as possible. It's in our best interest to sell as much beer as possible. So we coordinate with them every step of the way to make sure that not only do we build them a custom landing page on their site, and we make sure that that's as seamless as possible. So if someone is strictly there for high wire brewing or strictly there for D9 brewing, they're able to have that experience. But our big bet is that people are going to poke around and they're going to wind up exploring other things as well. And that's borne out. Not only that, but we also make sure we provide them all the resources and it's actually built into our agreements. Basically, the only uh, requirement we have of our partners is that at least twice a month they do a social media post where they reference the fact that you're able to pull, uh, you're able to buy online at our shop, which most of them we're going to anyways. It's in their best interest, but that gives me peace of mind. And truthfully, that's been the best thing that we've ever done because it leverages each and every one of their networks to our benefit. And that's a network effect about as simple and as as pure as you can possibly get, because it means that the more products we bring online, the more partners we bring online, the more that our reach grows without us having to incrementally spend a dime on marketing. Beautiful. Very, very, very nicely done. Yeah, no, very nicely done. And I think, you know, it's nice to know I can get a craft beer without having to play Crimes Against Humanity or some other silly board game and also still hang out with my 12 year old uh, to watch the game. Uh, when I want to get uh, those types delivered. And I do, as Blaine knows, travel everywhere. So it's nice to know as well uh, that we have that type of flexibility uh, when it comes to craft brewing. And it takes guys that look like you, act like you, and sound like you in order to figure this stuff out. So I want to thank all that. And I will just, as a side note, you, you I, I love you know trivial facts. Is it true that you know the other Dave Meltzer is a famous... Uh, WWE announcer, but were you truly a former uh, professional wrestler? And, and I thought I may have even seen you in a movie with The Rock and, and Kevin Hart. Is that true? Uh, bo- both of those are true. Yeah. So I was a professional wrestler in a past life. That was my dream all through my teenage years. So I did that throughout the Southeast and the Northeast, uh, basically from when I was 18. Uh, worked with a decent number of the people that you've seen on TV, was never fortunate enough to wrestle on TV myself. Um, but still an uh, area I got a lot of love for, but just like craft beer, it's a uh, pretty niche and everybody looks about like me. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I was also a featured extra in a uh, central intelligence movie with the rock and Kevin Hart. I don't recommend anybody go and watch it. It's absolutely terrible. And I love both of those guys. Uh, it wasn't the first time meeting the rock, but I uh, basically spent three days hanging out with the two of them. I was about maybe two feet away from them while they were filming, uh, just hanging out. So basically three straight days, which was awesome. Perks of knowing a uh, casting director. I was supposed to be way off in the background for about 30 minutes. And before I knew it, I found myself right up front. Hey, um, now, just, just full disclosure, I've seen the movie. Me too. <laughs> yeah. That's when I saw you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I do, I do like hanging out with Kevin Hart because I feel like I am the rock when I'm standing next to Kevin Hart. <laughs> so not too bad. Anyway, my wife's going to now make fun of me when she sees this episode. But thank you so much. I'm putting in my order. If you saw my fingers moving on the uh, – I was putting in my order, by the way, at Bevana, shop.bevana.com. Get your favorite beers right at your doorstep in a perfectly flat rate delivery system created – in part by the Senior Director of Business Development at Bavana, Aaron Gore, the superstar, movie star. Come back and join me. we got plenty of other places to see you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Appreciate Thank you Aaron. having me on. <laughs> So much fun. It's good guess. That's All cool. right. Well, we now have the opposite side of this 
We went from <laughs> the wrestling world to pure class. Uh, and Jenna Brocious is here, spiritual intuitive guide and founder of the Positive Intention Prayer Cards. Well, I'll tell you how dynamic Blaine and I are, Jenna, that as much as we enjoyed central intelligence, uh, we also enjoy your type of intelligence as well, the intuitive intelligence. Uh, and we both, as uh, members of the Transformational Leadership Council, uh, have worked in positive intention in all types of areas that you are an expert in. And I really would love to talk about how this positive intention is applicable to our emotions. And I think a lot of people don't realize that those are the emotions that either accelerate us to what we think we want or interfere with us in that omniscient, all-powerful, omnipresent, unified system of thought that we're all part and parcel to. So uh, I know you're known as Jenna B. Spiritual. It's time to be spiritual on Office Hours. Welcome, Jenna. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here, you guys. Yeah, I'm we're so happy to have you. Um, well, let's get into your intuitiveness. I have a, a philosophy that people get confused about intuition and being an intuitive as yourself, that they try to think that somehow you can reconcile intuition with logic, reason, or facts. And I don't think that's possible. I think a lot of people get in trouble. And, and my, be my best examples, I love, I have a studio at the Wynn Hotel in the lobby, which Blaine uh, graces his presence and comes to shoot with me. Uh, every once in a while, but I'll go by the craps table because I think it's so funny that there's always a guy at the craps table and they roll a hard eight and he says, I knew it. <laughs> I knew it was going to be a hard eight. And I'm thinking to myself, no, you didn't. You sat there for eight to 10 rolls and you kept saying, it's going to be a hard eight. It's going to be a hard eight. And that has nothing to do with intuition. Intuition raises our awareness that allows us to deal with uh, these emotional topics like worthiness, grief, change, strength, positivity, and love, things that allow us to live at our highest potential. I would love to get your insight on how people misunderstand spiritual intuitiveness. Well, to be honest with you, my spiritual intuitiveness didn't really kick in until I did the big journey of forgiving and finding peace for myself after a wild childhood. Mm -hmm. um, and with that came a lot of innerness that I started to understand and it grew from there. So uh, spiritual intuitiveness is really just being able to tap in and listen. And really it is just listening to God, listening to universe, listening to ourselves. What does our gut say? Is that a hell yes or an oh no? Um, but it's really just, I think it's about going inwards really with that spiritual intuitiveness. Yeah. That's the difficult part for most people on this planet. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things that's easy to describe and yeah, really kind of difficult to do. I've been meditating, you know, since the 1970s and I still, I mean, it's just kind of, okay, the brain is going to do what it's going to do. So I want to just ask this question here and it's not about meditation necessarily as much as it is, is that inner stillness where you have access to imagination. And what's your distinction, if any, between imagination and intuition? Well, I think as a child, I had an environment I was always trying to escape. So my imagination is full at all times still to this age because I love to just go off to a place that doesn't exist when I need that moment of um, if I'm like frustrated. It's like the place I can go to to find my peace is my mm -hmm. imagination. But I also think that 
just being able to sit in silence, which is extremely hard for most people to do, even for five minutes at the end of your bed and just sit there with the silence is really a great way to start if we're trying to start at the beginning. But five minutes is great. Try five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And you deal specifically too, you have positive intention prayer cards. Uh, how do you utilize the intention prayer cards uh, to deal with those topics that were discussed previously, like worthiness, grief, change, strength, positivity, love, etc.? Well, to be honest with you, during COVID, I was mentally struggling, um, just trying to keep a positive outlook with a child at home and my husband's at work and we don't know what's going to happen. And so I just was really trying to find something that had more of a positive outlook. And I felt like a lot of the prayer websites or like apps they had were kind of like doomsday-ish and it didn't really help me like feel better about anything going on in the world. So after all that really settled down, I was like, I have to create prayer cards where there's a positive outlook with it. There's a positive intention. The words I use are all with a positive looking forward, moving forward, something better is coming our way. And so I think when we can pray with more of a positive instead of that negative, oh, I don't have this. Well, when you don't have it and you amplify it, all you get is the not having of it. Mm -hmm. But when we start to think positively and we talk about having it, even though it might not yet be in front of us, that's calling it in more than us just sitting here being grouchy about the negative. You know, it's interesting because, you know, prayer is one form of gratitude mm -hmm. and gratitude. It's impossible to experience gratitude about, you know, in relation to something I believe I don't have. Right. So when you begin a gratitude practice or a prayer practice, coming from the position that it's already here, I do have it. Mm -hmm. And your languaging is structured in a way that acknowledges the fact that it does exist. It hasn't manifested yet necessarily, but it's already created. It is, it, it is in the ether. It will show up if I hold the state. And, and the awards have vibrational uh, components to them. So when you were putting your prayer cards together, uh, intention prayer cards, what did you pay particular attention to when you were selecting the words? outside of just a general, yeah, right. move away from not having to having. Is there, yeah, was there something that informed your choice of language? Well, the, the thesaurus, which I can't even pronounce correctly, was my best friend at that time because uh -huh. I would look up a word and then, you know, go down the list of like, okay, what's that word mean? And I really went deep into the dictionary when I was writing these prayer cards because I was very intentional with how I wanted to project these prayers so that it was moving forward into that positive light. So that the source was my favorite friend while I wrote these <laughs> prayer cards. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for chat GPT back then, huh? Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> uh, oops. It looks like we lost David's connection here. Uh -oh. uh, he, yeah. He'll get back in. We sometimes drop connections depending on where we, yeah, he and I are both remotely, you know, <laughs> Uh, position. We we did this in the car one time too. So, um, the, yeah. How long did it take you? I'm, I'm just kind of curious here. And part of the reason I ask is this book over my corner, uh, my shoulder here. Yeah, when COVID hit, I wrote that book, and I wrote it. Yeah, actually, in about six months. It didn't take much time at all. But the research and everything, I had the time, right. yeah, to be able to do that. So, how long did it take you to put the full deck together? I mean, it was, it probably took me three months 
to get all of them together. And then after I wrote the prayers, I went through and there's Bible verses at the bottom of the prayer uh -huh. that correlate with the prayer. Just, I like to make the Bible a little bit more digestible, digestible for people. And I felt like putting tiny little, um, um, verses in there kind of helped that happen. Mm -hmm. So the prayer verses or the Bible verses was the hardest part for me to find because I just wanted it to be so perfect. And at some point I had to let go of that perfection and just release it. And then my uh, marketing girl created them for me almost like within a week and they were perfect the first time they came out. So I knew it was very aligned when everything yeah. just perfectly fell into place for me when I was writing them. That's and, beautiful. Uh, proving there's a God by disappearing and coming back. Uh, <laughs> a, a little trick, trick of mine. Um, you know, it's interesting because all of us suffer uh, or struggle with trials, tribulations and trauma in our lives. Um, and we go on a quest to figure out the uh, religion versus spirituality. And on one of the shows, I forget who told me, but I love the definition of the difference between religion and spirituality. Uh, they said that religious people are afraid of going to hell, uh, where spiritual people have been to hell and they're afraid. Of um, you know, I kind of fall, I have a very religious family. I fall into the second category more uh, being a wild child like you. Uh, when I say wild child, it lasted up until I was like 36. Uh, but even more importantly, I had a lot of uh, trauma and tribulations uh, as well. How much do you think someone needs to be challenged in that way uh, to find more of either their religion or and their spirituality? Well, and let me just say one thing. I think spirituality is also just knowing oneself is really the definition of spirituality, which I think gets very lost in a lot of religions that if I'm spiritual, that means I'm not a Christian. And I always love to realign that for everybody. Um, but I think that everything is always working in our favor. And if we all just move forward with that and the word, the world is not against us, but for us. Mm -hmm. I feel like people's lives will completely change. And religion can fall within all of that. God is for you. He's not against you. He wants you to thrive. He doesn't want you to survive. So we all are going to have moments of survival. But how do we get ourselves out of that survival and turn into thriving again is, I think, the most important part. But I think that religion fits into that just as much. I'm religious. I go to church and I love all those things. But I also think that there's something within me that's just as special as well. God is within me. He created all of us. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I, I love I saying, you know, God comes through us. Right. And I talked to him. <laughs> in fact, I had a conversation with Tom Bilyeu on Monday because he doesn't believe in anything. He believes in science in this life and that's it. And I was surprised because we, we agree on about 80% of our philosophies together. And, he's, and uh, I said, you know, it's real simple for me. I believe in something bigger than me that loves me more than my mom. So I live my life and it's through me, not even for me. It's beyond for me, but it's definitely not to me like a victim. And he said, well, you know, how can you prove that? I said, well, here's what I believe. I don't think you could prove what you're saying. And I know I can't prove what I'm saying, but when I can't prove something, I seem to, to always lean towards the more positive beneficial uh, opportunity because of my faith. So you know, if someone says, I don't believe in past lives, I'm like, well, prove to me there's not, uh, you know, past or future lives 
and I'll, I'm here to listen. I'm here to learn. But until then, if someone tells me you have a choice, live one life or a million of them, I'm going to choose a million of them. And, uh, you know, it just seems mathematical and positive to me. So uh, anyway, Blaine, we have bread in the house. Uh, Gemma, be spiritual. Gemma, be good. Jenna, be spiritual.com. Uh, the cards uh, will help to uh, provide what I call the mathematical equation of luck. The coincidences, consequences, and karma that you want exist by paying attention to and giving intention to the coincidences that you want. And no better way to create the coincidences that you want in your life than to have positive intention prayer cards to remind, remember, and recollect that we are connected to and through an omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing source that loves us more than our mom. Thank you for sharing with us and uh, continuing a journey uh, for all of us. And I want you on more of my shows. I know Blaine does too. We keep on doing this disappearance act, but uh, we will have you back. Thank Thank you for having me. I love you guys. I always love talking about this stuff. So I'm here anytime. Awesome. We'll have you back. We love talking about it as well. Jenna Brocious, thanks for joining us on Office Hours. All right, waiting in the wings. And uh, I got jilted at the altar by maybe seeking uh, retribution because I left him for a minute earlier. President and co-founder of Kumo Space is here, kumospace.com. Brett Martin, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you so much for having me. And I certainly would never want to leave you hanging like that. Thanks a lot. <laughs> The revenge, revenge of the nerd. That's what Blaine, he just left me because I left him. But, uh, you know, there's so much going on in uh, the office spaces in the world and uh, the virtual office platform now uh, with unlimited rooms and customizations. Give me an idea of, you know, that founding necessity that you saw for Kumo Space. Well, it, it's, you know, we are a COVID baby. And it, it started, uh, I used, you know, I run a venture capital firm called Charge Ventures. And we used to throw a monthly networking event where we would invite folks over and they would share deals and the pandemic hit. And uh, everyone said, well, why don't you take this online, take it on a Zoom? And, and I, I said, I don't really want to have a, give a PowerPoint presentation to 50 of my closest friends every month. That doesn't sound like fun for me or for them. And so we realized that there was really no platform that lets you have multiple people congregate in real time in the same virtual place. And, um, you know, that was how we started. We, we did a lot of events and, you know, we eventually zeroed in on the sort of virtual office as the biggest need, even post pandemic, you know, uh, remote work is here to stay. And, uh, you know, if you have a thousand people working uh, remotely, you know, they need a place to show up to work. Yeah. How virtual is it? <clears throat> and I, and I mean by that, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I do some work with Spatial, uh, Spatial.io, and yep. yeah, it's a virtual reality environment. And uh, yeah, I've tried to host a couple of meetings there. Uh, it's a little kludgy, uh, which isn't. I mean, it's it's a nascent technology. But how virtual is the virtual space that we're working with here? And what are you, what are the accoutrements, if you will, that I could well, make use of? Yeah, hundred percent. I, you know, I'm not in the business of uh, talking ill of other people in this space. Uh, it's, you know, as a venture capitalist, we, I, uh, you know, admire anyone that gets out there and you know tries to build something novel. Um, but it it is a common misconception. I, I I explain what we are, and then people say, "Oh, so are you virtual real virtual reality?" 
and um, no, we're not we're not virtual reality. We're actually just a you know two dimensional kind of virtual space, like a you know a, a just a you know simple kind of like video game meets video chat. Uh, but the you know because distribution is important, right? Like there's only so many people that have um, VR headsets, a few million, maybe a few hundred thousand active in the world, and you know Kumo Space, we already have millions of users. Uh, you know we have people spending six hours a day in there. No one is capable of uh, wearing a VR headset for six hours. You'll, you'll probably vomit. <laughs> so, so we're focused on being really easy to use. You know, we, we have uh, moms and grandmothers and, you know, people um, of all shapes and sizes and different technological literacy using Kumo space. That, that, that's actually a prerequisite to building something that's widely adopted. An association so important when it comes to a company's culture and you can go to a location even if it's a virtual office uh and be able to communicate effectively locating and uh you know utilizing this combination of a more convenient way to talk to one another but also to locate them how does uh the system work in lockstep with company culture what have you seen as enhancing the culture that a zoom call won't allow us to do well, I, I think you said it really well, David. And uh, the, the way I frame it is people come for the culture. They buy really for the accountability and the visibility. And then they stay for the collaboration. And what I mean by that is everyone who runs a remote or hybrid team, they know that they have a culture problem. They, they know that if they're not seeing each other regularly, you know, people aren't they're not connected. They're not going to build real relationships at work. They're not going to have the trust that helps people get things done quickly. And, you know, they're just going to switch jobs as soon as someone offers them a dollar more. Right. Um, they buy the, you know, the buyers tend to be kind of managers and, and CEOs and COOs and, and they buy because, you know, the same reason everyone's bringing uh, their employees back to the office, you know, they, they, they say, Oh, you know, what's my team doing? Um, you know, how, you know, who, how can I help them if I can't see them? How can I get in front of problems early? And, and, you know, everyone thinks it's, oh, it's, it's micromanaging, but actually it's, it's bringing equity to remote workers. You know, remote workers have long been kind of second class citizens. They never get promoted. They don't get the FaceTime with the boss. And so one of the big reasons that folks use virtual office is to put everyone on a level playing field and give you exposure, you know, to the leaders at the company. And then the, the third element is the collaboration. That's why people stay. And, you know, we have really high retention. I, I don't think we've, I think we've maybe churned one a virtual office user since we started selling the product. And that's, what you alluded to, which is the ability, the real time collaboration that's unlocked. If everyone's available in the same place at the same time, you can tap people on the shoulder. Again, you can get a quick answer to your question. You know, you don't have to, if you have to iterate on something multiple times, you can do it in the course of a couple hours, not over, over weeks. And so we see a virtual office, Kumo space, virtual office as, you know, an, a power tool if you want to be a productive and fast-moving uh, remote team. You know, I started doing work in the virtual space in the uh, late 90s uh, when I was you know, doing a lot of leadership development work with Nokia. 
And you look great, had... Blaine. D don't date yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but you know, we had we had teams that had you know, composition. I mean, people were from all over the, literally all over the globe. And we were. You know, I remember uh, you know, Jessica Lipnack wrote wrote I think the very first book on virtual team structures, virtual teams. And I yeah, I had a conversation with Jessica uh, and her late husband about just kind of how do you structure one of these things. And to their point, collaboration precipitously dropped if there was asynchronous communication mm -hmm. and being able to find a way to synchronize and, and have synchronous communication uh, actually going on. Now, back in the late 90s, that was, you know, boy, talk about a, a Herculean task trying to get everybody on a platform that would be robust enough from a bandwidth perspective to actually facilitate that. We, we got over the hump, barely, but it was an interesting lift what, you know, where you're at right now, what do you see? And, I'm, and this is where I'm going with this, because, you know, since the 90s to now, there's been an enormous uh, shift in technology, capability and access and willingness to access. From your, your catbird seat here, Brett, I'm very curious with AI and everything else that's kind of coming in. What do you see the next iteration of this virtual space being and how quickly do you see it actually appearing? So, yeah, I mean, we're fortunate to, to your point that we get to stand on the shoulders of, of giants, uh, you're right, you know, bam, bandwidth. So much has changed. We've got 5G, we've got all the, all the fiber in the, in the world. And, you know, we're definitely sitting on top of that infrastructure. I think if you look at a product like Zoom, right, they were successful because they did one thing and they did it well and they actually made it work. You know, all the other video providers, they were glitchy and buggy and zoom just worked right it's not it's not that yeah. zoom is such a lovely a beautiful amazing product to use it just happens to do video quite you know and it doesn't break on you which it was great for the past 10 years but i think if you look forward to the next 10 years right like video that functions is going to be table stakes and and the folks that you know build really amazing um you know, collaboration, real-time collaboration platforms are going to have much more surface area, much more ecosystem, right? You know, that one of the cool parts about building Kuma Space in a virtual office, right? You know, you go in and you are your avatar and you see, you know, every different teams talking and collaborating, screen sharing, presenting, uh, you know, people playing games and, you know, playing Tetris with each other. Um, it creates so much more surface area for interactivity and apps. And we have, you know, whiteboards in Kumo space. We have integrated with Google docs and with your messaging, and we've got a gong that rings when you do, you know, you make sales. And if you think about the, the interface that is a, a virtual office, it's so much wider open than say a zoom Brady, Brady bunch kind of squares where, you know, you know, how many apps can you actually get into that interface? And so I guess, you know, this, takes us into dangerous uh, metaverse territory, which, you know, I'm not necessarily going to go on, but, you know, it, it is true that Kuma Space is probably one of the largest B2B metaverses in, in the world right now. And, you know, with people spending, you know, people are spending tens of millions of, of minutes in Kuma Space every month. That's yeah. congratulations. One of the other surprising things, though, is I'm looking through, you know, all of the arsenal of features and benefits of Kumo space, and you're an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School as well. I think all the capabilities of Kumo space 
uh, also are applicable to the future of education. I mean, I think what's missing yeah. in virtual school are all the components that you just listed out with the collaboration, accountability, the coordination, uh, the tapping on the shoulder, the whiteboards, uh, the professor's office hours. Uh, and, you know, when I'm listening and watching you, obviously it's applicable to a virtual office, but I think it's even more applicable uh, to the virtual university and the hybrid that exists there of being able to provide a better experience for those kids. So hold 60 to $80,000 a year uh, to go to school when half the kids are just, you know, jumping on the laptops all the time anyway. So how do you see the future uh, to utilize Kumo space in the education space as well? Well, David, it, it's funny. You make a, you make a really good point. And, you know, honestly, some of our first, uh, well, in practice, we have a lot of corporate education going on in Kumo space. So a lot of L and D sales training, sales and sales enablement seminars, because, you know, if you are uh, teaching a new crop of, uh, you know, financial analysts or, um, you know, brokers, and they're going through their uh, series seven training. And, you know, today that the thing is, oh yeah, you send them a video and they watch it at home, which reality means that they're, you know, moving the mouse every few minutes and cooking dinner and doing everything, but watch that video. Whereas some of the folks, customers, uh, you know, we have Prime America as one of our customers, they have new classes of, um, you know, brokers coming in all the time and they put them in a virtual classroom they play a virtual, they play a video and they watch it together in the context of the office. So they, you know, feel all the meetings going on and see the rest of the team working while watching a video, which is a much more engaging experience. So, you know, that's, that's a work use case, but to answer your question more directly, well, you know, when we first started, it's interesting and we still do have a lot of education uh, users. Um, we had both all top four consultancies and mid, a bunch of middle schools all over the world. We actually were, I think, we, we had, at one point we had several hundred thousand Malaysian middle schoolers using, using Kumo space. Um, and so in my head, I, I could not fathom, I said, how can these two groups of people be so different, be using the same tool? And in particular, stodgy old consultancies. And so I asked them, I said, you know, no, no offense. I mean, they're they're great customers, and I love them. But it's they're, they're not they're exactly early. They're all blamed. They're not friends. exactly. <laughs> they're not early adopters of technology. Usually, you know, they're conservative. That's their job. I respect that. Um, and they told me they said, "Well, we use this to have workshops with Fortune 500 CEOs." And I said, "Wow, that's crazy." And I said, "Why do you do that?" And they said, "You know why? Because it keeps their attention." And mm -hmm. if you think about Zoom. Right and experiences normal video uh, conferencing experiences. They're they're kind of a uh, a webinar. It's a late sit back experience, right? You sit back, you turn off your video, and you and you kind of disengage. Whereas Kumo Space is a more like a video game in the sense that it's a lean forward experience. If someone's not paying attention to you you will literally walk away from them in the virtual space and talk to someone else. And I think that's the same reason that it worked really well for even middle schoolers is because, you know, I said, wow, it sounds like chaos. Imagine middle schoolers running around your virtual classroom. And the teachers said, you know what? It's better that they're engaged than if they're just checked out. Yeah. Yep. I can see that. And uh, there's so many different applications existing today, but even more in the future. And, 
I really would love it for this conversation. We have other shows as well. Brett Martin, your insight is invaluable as far as understanding how we do engage a totally unengaged audience, which is our uh, workforce today. Over 87% of the people around the world are not engaged in the activity they get paid for. So there's a huge ROI to Kumo Space, that's for sure. Brett Martin, thanks for joining us. Uh, go to kumospace.com if you're looking for a better environment to build your company culture and increase the productivity and accessibility. And of course, since it's thankful Thursday, even the gratitude of our uh, corporate culture and people. Thanks, Brett, for joining us. I look forward to seeing you soon. Hey, thank you for having me. Great questions. Be well, gentlemen. Great. Thank, thank you. you. All right. I didn't want to tell him that you wow. and I went to high school together when he said you look so good, but I, you know, me, very few people know we're hey, the same age. There you I go. Rarely tell uh, humility, you humility. Humility. You robbed the cradle with that 30 year old wife of yours, too. You got all things working against you today, Blaine. I don't know. She looks I so know. young. What can I say? Boy. <laughs> hey, I, one quick fact before we bring Trisha on here. Well, we're going to bring her on before I engage Trisha. Real fun yeah. fact today that Southern California has more rain as of this date, this year, than Seattle. Than, than wow. Seattle does. Yep. That's incredible. We all got a green state now. Uh, literally a green state for once. You know, you know, <laughs> don't they all think we have a green state, but it's it's green and also usually brown in its uh, terrace. But Teresha, we've also got tornadoes too. So yeah, yeah, that was weird. Uh, that was weird. I know what but is there's happening? No, there's no global change. We'll be fine. No environmental changes at all. Trisha Montalvo, Tim, she's here visiting us. She is an author, speaker also a board member and thought leader and DEI advocate, which is one of the primary focuses uh, for Blaine and I as middle-aged white men. Uh, we're doing our best uh, to play our part. And I think more people like us should be playing their part, which yeah. is why we wanted to have you on. And I love your new book, Embrace the Power of You. You can't find outside of you what you can't find inside of you. Yeah. Owning your identity at work. Thank you, Trisha, for your patience, but most importantly, thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. And thank you for talking about this important topic. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I'm going to start with a little different question because okay. a lot of people when they're talking about DEI and, you know, as a thought leader, they're always focused in on women. I have three daughters, you know, 23, mm -hmm. 21 and 18. And I said, you know, I, I understand that we have to empower my girls, you know, my young women, my kids. Uh, but don't you think that we should be spending some time teaching the the older middle-aged white men to unlearn some things, especially the ones with, you know, really good intentions like Blaine Bartlett? Mm -hmm. And I will put myself in that category because I know my intentions are good. I want yeah. the best for everyone. And we're yeah. not giving our best to everyone. And I have to tell you, you know, a lot of times I feel ignored. Uh, and I'm a pretty powerful person to help create change. Always have been. And I think we need to engage more people that look like Blaine and I in this effort because we want to be engaged. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And actually, there's a study that either is coming out or has come out that um, white men want to be part of this conversation and are feeling left out. I think the organization is called PRISM. Uh, and oftentimes, either you're... Uh, you don't want to be judged. You are afraid to say the wrong thing. And so you're sort of waiting. Um, but no, we absolutely not only need you as part of this conversation, but you actually can help us move the needle. Uh, so it's incredibly important. And a lot of the work that I'm 
did as uh, being a DNI advocate in my last company was try to bridge the gap. I think I've, one of the unique things that I have is I've been in the boardroom and the C-suite, and I've also been a woman and a woman of color, and so I've been in both spaces. And so I can sort of bridge that and have that conversation in, in both spaces using, you know, different language, so. Yeah, and it, and it is, I mean, the language, um, the language of inclusion, the, the, you know, the language of diversity, the language, it can be either inclusive language to the point that David was making a little bit ago, or it can be an exclusionary language structure. Um, mm -hmm. The, and I'm, you know, I know that there's a question in that preface, uh, <laughs> but I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> in, in the work that you do, Tricia, um, how do you actually facilitate uh, a conversation that actually gets somewhere rather than around a circle? You know, I, people approach DEI from different perspectives. And my perspective mm -hmm. is really to try to create empathy, to try to see what different lived experiences are from different people's eyes. And so I do a lot of storytelling and I tell a lot of my okay. personal story um, so that there's a perspective that someone may not have seen. And once you start creating that empathy, then some of that, you know, I would say armor that we've put up starts coming down and you're more curious, you're interested in learning, you don't feel judged. Um, and so I think that bridging, again, I think it's that bridge is a really important word because I, I don't like the divisiveness of us then. I think it's we all, and I think how David started the show, which is we need everyone in this conversation. Um, you know, I'm out, part of my book is to empower people who are struggling to belong and owning their identity and to help them through the journey. But in the book, I ask, actually specifically have manager strategies at the end of each chapter so that those leaders that want to create inclusive workplaces have very practical tips based on that journey of that individual reader. And so they can put into real time um, some strategies to help create inclusive environments. We need both we need that person to, you know, have the courage and go through their own self-reflection to show up as their authentic self. But we need the environment to be inclusive and belonging and accepting of that. And without each of those two, it's not going to work. And Trisha, I think it's interesting because of that acceptance side. And I think we strayed a little bit too far away from the acceptance side. Um, because if everyone's going to show up as their authentic self, we have to be more forgiving. Uh, because yeah. whether... You're a person of color, a man, a woman, tall, short, heavy, light, whatever uh, differences we all have. Um, and I, lo I love and appreciate those differences that if we aren't accepting of someone that needs to unlearn something, mm -hmm. uh, a really positive, intelligent, intuitive, inspired employee that just has something to unlearn because grandpappy mm -hmm. in Louisiana and mommy in Louisiana since the day they came out of the womb have been utilizing certain vernacular or perspectives uh, and they just don't know better. Uh, yeah. And everyone's walking on eggshells because uh, they feel there's no forgiveness. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and I feel this, I do so many interviews. Uh, one of the best pieces of advice that I had is we have, you know, all types of different ways to uh, address people. You know, one of my favorite people, she's executive with, um, YouTube and she uh, calls herself a queer and mm -hmm. I was like I was reading the notes I'm like oh this can't be right I can't I, I can't say that she's you know queer yeah. and and I'm like so I asked interview hey yeah. um what do I do 
because I'm in so many interviews. Some people say, call me an African-American. Some people say, call me black. Some people, mm-hmm. who knows what they're going to call them. She said, Dave, I don't mean to insult your intelligence. But why don't you start by asking someone what they want to be called? Right, <laughs> right? exactly. <laughs> this is something I have to unlearn because I, I, I don't want to offend anyone. I want to be right. such a positive influence. And some right. of these things are simple, but it takes that, like you said, the ability to build a culture that says, hey, we're a forgiving culture. Yes. And so let's help each other. What are some of the things, because you have advised some mm-hmm. big high tech companies mm-hmm. uh, and small ones, but what mm-hmm. are some of the things that you've instituted to give a more forgiving environment uh, mm-hmm. and give everyone the benefit of the doubt that we really have good intentions to help each other? Mm-hmm. I, I love the word forgiving. And I think part of it is really being vulnerable ourselves and saying when we mess mm-hmm. up, showing that we mess up um, and you know, recognizing that we, we all are learning. We're all on this journey. We're, nobody's an expert in this area. Um, and so if we ourselves role model what it, feels, what it looks like to be forgiving, to say, I, I got it wrong, how can I do better? Um, then people around you will be more apt to you know, take the next step and also um, be forgiving of others. Um, and to your prior point too, um, you know, we have a lot of focus on increasing diversity at, cor- at corporations, organizations. Um, but then when they, when they get into the organization, we find that we, as human beings, we tend to want to be around people that are like us. We gravitate towards those people. We like consensus. And so then all of a sudden, someone who's diverse comes into a conversation with a different thought, and we're surprised. Um, so the first step is like, don't be surprised. Right. You, you know, we're bringing diverse perspectives into the room for a reason. Um, and so expect diverse thought and not, you know, ex, you know, expect everyone to just come along in the bandwagon. Uh, and I think yeah. just, again, I'm learning some of those things. You know, it's interesting that that whole surprise. It's you know, in, you know, when we're looking at emotional intelligence, the foundation of emotional intelligence from a leadership perspective is self-awareness. And yeah. anytime I have an emotional reaction to something, I want to be in a position um, to back up the truck a little bit and go, okay, that's an interesting reaction that I just had. I can call it surprise, mm-hmm. but what's the source mm-hmm. of that in me? Not what's the source of it out there. What's the mm-hmm. source of it in, in me that is causing me to be su- surprised? You know, what norm got just, you know, what norm got disrupted? And Inviting that kind of a conversation uh, is incredibly useful and it's authenticity writ large. I have to be vulnerable in order to do that. And then I make that declaration. How is that addressed in your book in in terms of owning your own identity? Yeah. This idea of being able to look back here and go, that's that, that was sourced from me. (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, being Surprise. So the example you just gave of being surprised at something. So for example, what happens to me a lot is people ask me, what do you do? And if I say corporate lawyer, board member, investor, I will say nine out of 10 times people are surprised. I don't look like what they think a board member or an investor venture capitalist looks like, whatever that is, right? And, and that's a microaggression. Those are those little jabs that happen. And over time, what that does to someone like me is it erodes my confidence. It makes me feel like I have to now prove that I somehow earned this or whatever that might be, or the acceptance. And so what I can tell you from being in spaces of, uh, let's say, women of color, um, 
let's say this surprise happens. If you own that surprise and out it, say, wait, I just noticed I was surprised. I got to examine that. Or what, if you actually out that, I can tell you as a person over here, I would, that would, that would make me just feel, you know, seen that you noticed it and you said it because otherwise I'm creating a story over here um, that you just, you, you know, you have a, a bias that you're not unaware of. So again, like owning our own, um, un, un, you know, unconscious biases and, and, and outing them, I'll tell you in any space that I am with people of color, um, they are more than happy to be forgiving when someone says, look, I made a mistake. How can I do better? Mm-hmm. People are really willing to help and say, yeah, let me tell you in your previous example, David, let me tell you, here's a tip. This would help me if you just ask, how, what do I want to be called? And, and then, you know, then the issue goes away. Yeah. Well, this book yeah. is one that everyone, especially in the corporate world, uh, in any role uh, should be reading, embracing the power of you, even beyond the corporate world. Uh, we can't find outside of us what we can't find inside of us. And mm-hmm. I think the next the title of your next book should be, don't be surprised. I think it would be the next level <laughs> yeah. of emotional intelligence. I like yeah. I like Trisha, <laughs> an endorsement on there as well and, and amplify it for you. Trisha Montalvo, Tim, thank you so much. Please come back and join us. We want to learn more uh, to help okay. other people appreciate our differences and it will only help us all. Uh, please go out, get Embrace the Power of You, author, speaker, board member, thought leader, recovering lawyer, or real lawyer, DI advocate, <laughs> he is TrishaTim.com. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you both. Thanks, Trisha. All right, Blaine, I got two minutes to get downstairs for this uh, thing. So real quick, takeaway of the day. Um, I'm going to just put it in one word, distribution. And uh, what I mean by that is, you know, we go all, you know, we can look at beer. We can look at ideas. We can look at inclusion. We can look at uh, uh, grace. We can look at uh, the prayer cards as an example. Uh, what, what is it that I'm actually distributing? Yeah. So, you know, becoming a center of distribution and all that that actually entails and suggests as a possibility. Um, Each one of our guests today in some way, shape or form talked about how do I get what I have out there so I have impact and somebody can use it. I love it. My takeaway is intention. What we pay attention to and what we give intention to, the coincidences that we want in all aspects, business, personal flourishing, whatever it may be, the mindset, the heart set, and the hand set directly relative to attention and intention. And my intention is to send you light, love, and lessons, my friend. Thank you so much. I'm going to run downstairs. I want to thank everybody. BlaineBartlett.com. This is Office Hours. Make sure you're more interested than interested to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.